0: Introducing Batiste Sweat Activated and Touch Activated Dry Shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste Dry Shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, the Angevin Queens.
0: With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where usually we're reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts from Elswyth to Prince Philip, but today... Having done our last little mini-series, we're having a bit of a reflection uh, and looking back on the uh, the Angevin Queens, the consorts that we've just been doing. And to help us in that, we are joined by an historian. And uh, I didn't double-check before we started, which I should have done. Is Gabby okay? Would yes, okay? Gabby
2: is fine. Hello. Very nice to be here. Yeah, very much looking forward to chatting about all things Queens with you. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, they are... Um, crazy right this this last bunch i mean i'm talking specifically about um uh eleanor and i've forgotten her again isabella isabella yeah just fantastic but i can't understand but they're still over somehow she's still overshadowed at least by john when she's got such a fascinating talent by herself
2: yeah, I think so much of um, what we end up knowing about John, it's just popular to look at him as the bad king almost. Um, and I know there's been more recent work kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, he was affected by Richard going off on crusade and all other kind of problems. And it, yeah, the narrative just focuses on John and we forget about Isabella and the fact she has land in France and she has mm. this amazing life. Yeah. All about the kings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Point.
0: <laughs> right, setting the record straight now. Hmm. So, what we're going to do? We, I was thinking we'd have maybe a bit of a sort of an overview of the Angevin queens, just to sort of who they were, what's interesting about them as a group, and queenship in this period. And then maybe we'll see where it goes. I'm sure Ali will take me off in all sorts of directions <laughs> I'm not expecting to be taken off into. Yeah. And then look at some of the specific ones. Um, first, could you just um, sort of introduce yourself a little bit? Sort of uh, who you are, where you're from, what exactly you specialize in, etc.
2: Yes, so my name's Gabby Story. I did my PhD at the University of Winchester, which I've recently completed, and my thesis focused on Angevin Queenship from 11.35 to 12.30. Uh, So within this, I kind of looked at the Empress Matilda as well as someone who was nearly a queen but wasn't crowned. But uh, for those of you who kind of have looked at the anarchy or empress matilda you'll know she did have power bases in england and um exercised quite a considerable amount of authority so i really kind of look into empress matilda eleanor of aquitaine berengary of navarre and Isabella of with them and kind of how they work with one another how they rule with their husbands and their sons and familial relations and power dynamics so kind of digging into all the juicy bits between them, digging into their relationships and working out how they kind of work together or don't work together, I suppose. And at the moment, I am currently working on turning this into a book. And I'm also hoping to get a biography on Berengar of Navarre. that's the wife of Richard I, um, out soon, because she is a very much forgotten queen, so to speak. You know, like we were just saying, everyone remembers Eleanor and people might know a little bit about Isabella. Mm. that beringari is definitely one to one side
1: i'd i'd love to read that because that they are all the best bits of the reigns for me all the juicy bits the the intrigue and the scandal and lovely stuff though i've got to say
0: timing is absolutely terrible if you could have done this you know six months earlier that would have been absolutely perfect for the podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> would it what were we doing six months ago
0: uh, well, I would probably have been starting to do some oh, research I see. and thinking oh, it would be really good if there was a book about all of these. <laughs>
1: oh, I see, I see, I see, got you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so could you just give us a kind of a quick run through of uh, the Angevin Queen? She mentioned about the Empress Matilda as uh, as the first one.
2: Yes. So I kind of look at Matilda because uh, where she was due to inherit from Henry the I and her ability to kind of rule in Normandy and in England, so... Although she's never crowned Queen Regnant, she does still kind of wield power, especially in the southwest of England. And then the second one would be Eleanor of Aquitaine. So when she marries Henry, obviously they become rulers of England in 1154 and they've got Aquitaine, Anjou, Maine, all these French territories um you've then got berenguer of navarre richard First, wife and isabella of Angoulême, wife of john and then it's during john's reign that obviously they lose a lot of the land in france including Anjou. so that's kind of the end of the Angevin, so to speak and we move on to henry the Third, and the rest of the Plantagenets.
0: so why did you um include um the empress matilda then i suppose what's sort of different obviously like you said she was kind of competing to be a Queen regnant. I suppose she was sort of a consort in her first marriage to the in Germany and then she becomes a Queen mother later on so she kind of does most especially yeah she almost gets to do all the Queenly jobs really isn't she so why did you decide to include her as part of that group
2: yeah, so with Matilda, I thought it'd be really interesting just to do a comparison between her and Eleanor to start off with in terms of how they work as mothers and daughters-in-law. Like you say, they're both queen mothers, um, what relationships they have with their sons. But I think she's is quite tied to the Angevids, obviously, where she's married to Geoffrey of Anjou. and. I think it's really important to kind of study her as a female ruler, even if her power isn't officially sanctioned, so to speak. She was still meant to have been heiress to the throne. She still managed to exercise power. And like I say as queen mother, she's really involved in Henry II's reign and, uh, you know, working for him in Normandy as a regent. So there's lots of instances where she acts like a queen, which I think make her really worthy of more study.
0: Yeah, because remember when we did our we did a special episode on her and it's surprising because when you, you learn about her, it effectively all ends with her giving up on the throne and just focusing on Henry. And it's surprising, actually, how far into Henry's reign she lives and actually how influential she is on him. She's actually more influential, really, than Eleanor is.
2: Yeah, I think particularly in the 1150s, whilst Henry's kind of gr- uh, finding his feet... Uh, as he becomes like King of England and so on, he's dependent on Matilda to kind of rule Normandy for him whilst he's establishing himself in England. And he's dependent on Eleanor as well to kind of help him rule England and then the rest of the Angevin domains. And it's only really towards the mid to late 1160s you kind of see him growing away from both of them. Uh, Matilda's not included or depended upon as much for kind of advice and counsel any further. And his relationship with Eleanor starts falling apart a bit as well. So, Did they ever meet? Uh, Matilda and Eleanor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't know. It feels likely that they would have done. We know she wouldn't have been at the marriage ceremony because she was based in Normandy for yeah. so long. It seems unlikely that they would have crossed paths. But you'd kind this of think been... after 20-odd years, <laughs> they would have managed to meet at some point but we've not got any evidence kind of indicating that they did meet at a specific point
1: but they didn't like fall there wasn't a public falling out between the two because i imagine they're like a movable object meets unstoppable force those two
2: <laughs> yeah just a little bit uh no i'm afraid there's no kind of scandalous falling out yeah. or public butting of heads with those two mm. um, And it's a shame The only instance we kind of know of a connection between the two of them is that he asked both of them to kind of help in his dispute with Henry, Uh, but they both Mm -hmm. choose not, oh, Eleanor doesn't intervene from what we know. Matilda kind of uses her words very carefully when she's trying to advise Henry to uh, mend relations with Beckett, but it doesn't obviously come to any avail anyway. Uh, It's the only real instance we've got of them two kind of crossing over.
1: I just hadn't had them around at the same time in, in my mind. They're, they're a long way apart. But as you say to you, man, it's a long time, long way into his reign. Mm. Oh, fiery. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. And I say we don't know that Matilda would have necessarily come back to England as much either. Like I say, she's quite happily settled in uh, Normandy mm. once takes to the throne and him and Eleanor are just so focused on ruling all these other domains they're both just kind of traveling apart and obviously Eleanor's having a lot of children at this time as well which kind of further restricts her ability Mm. to move and travel and potentially see Matilda.
0: Do there tend to be sort of when they are when queens are at the same court like that we know of like relationships between the queens and the queen mothers or is that something that the chroniclers don't tend to be interested in?
2: chroniclers aren't particularly interested in it um we do have an interesting uh, charter which documents berengaria and eleanor being at the same place after richard's funeral um and it's kind of evidence of berengaria trying to assert her rights after richard's death and gain her lands and so on so that's probably one of the few instances we've got for the queens in this period where they are known to be in the same place but otherwise um we don't have reports from the chronicle saying that they were both you know at court at christmas time or so on we know mm. when eleanor and her children are all at court but we don't necessarily know if eleanor and matilda are both there or say eleanor and her other daughters-in-law
1: and there's no um correspondence between the two that we have
2: nope none whatsoever oh, i'm <laughs> <laughs> that'd be brilliant it is, and it is the bane of doing queenship that you look for all these letters, and the ones from the pope survive. You've got yeah. all papal letters to the Queen, which is fantastic, but you never get their replies. Oh, You've not got the they... reply to many of them. Well,
1: so even the pope didn't keep his letters from queens.
2: They might be there, but I think the Vatican archives are pretty extensive and a very <laughs> long waiting list to get in and look around. <laughs> so it might be a case of people have chosen to publish the pope's. One yeah. um a return correspondence, but yeah, we've not got again much evidence kind of supporting.
0: Mm. Shame. I know, I know. So we step back a bit with um Matilda and the point at which she's uh trying to become the Queen Regnant uh of England. She's obviously she's Henry the First's only legitimate uh surviving child. Everyone had said that they were gonna recognise her as queen, but then to see Stephen goes and takes the throne, so why why do you think she didn't ultimately manage it, particularly eleven forty one where Stephen was captured? Matilda was effectively waiting to be crowned. Was it her errors? was it sexism? was it Henry the I having messed it up in the first place why Why did she not quite manage to get that crown on her head?
2: Uh, The medieval chroniclers love to say that it is down to Matilda that she's not made queen, that she offends the Londoners um, before she goes to the city um, and so on. And I think, obviously we mentioned earlier, Matilda's previous marriage to Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor. she's already been crowned as Empress. She's quite aware of her status and her importance as a former Empress and as the rightful heiress to the throne of England and I don't believe in using the words like haughty and arrogant to describe her I think she was just keen to kind of uh, accept her place, the place that should have been hers, as named by Henry the I um, but whether that was perhaps viewed as um, overstepping by the Londoners, whether she did perhaps uh, go too far and should have been more moderate when she was trying to enter london and kind of negotiate a bit better perhaps and yes probably there was an element of sexism in it in that the nobles were quite willing to accept stephen over mm. matilda you know they didn't really stop that long to think about it and <laughs> the day stephen kind of popped over and they're like yep here, do and the king." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's not worry about uh the daughter we said we would uphold who's currently over in normandy stephen's here here do
1: yeah He looks much more like the last one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When we did Matilda of Boulogne, so Stephen's consort, and she was one that I think we never really heard of before uh, doing the episode and then were really impressed by her and the way that actually in 1141 it was the two Matildas really that were fighting for control. And would it be fair to say that maybe Matilda of Boulogne kind of showed the empress how it could be done or was it just because she wasn't trying to take the throne that she was able to be a bit more successful do you think
2: i think what a lot of the chroniclers and what other historians would say about matilda of Boulogne is yes she is doing it the right way because she is queen consort and she's working for the benefit of her husband that's the key point she is exercising kind of military leadership for the benefit of stephen whereas empress matilda is doing it for herself and that's not as well sanctioned or kind of well praised mm. so yeah uh if empress matilda had been working on behalf of a male kind of counterpart i'm not necessarily saying that the english would have welcomed Geoffrey of Anjou. but if perhaps there had been another husband who was more warmly welcomed then perhaps it would have worked better but for uh, matilda of boulogne working for stephen that's definitely more commendable more praiseworthy and yeah more accepted
1: yeah that's interesting
0: mm. It's so like maybe if she'd been effectively claiming the throne on behalf of her son, Henry, rather than herself. Maybe they might have been a bit more.
1: Why didn't you should do that right from the start? Was Henry not born?
2: Yes, he is. He is born at the time of Henry the death. So Oh. I think what it is is just Matilda obviously views her kind of power views her authority as legitimate she thinks that she should indeed mm. take the throne of england yeah and i don't think she wants to think perhaps about transmitting it to her son at this point She sees mm. no reason why she couldn't be a queen because i presume
1: she's thinking it would go to him eventually anyway that she's her first son but she wants a crack at the whip
2: yeah definitely um. and you know, female queen regnants aren't unprecedented in this period. This is uh, one of the first we have for England. But in Spain, there's another queen regnant who um, takes the throne, Uraka mm. of um, Leon Castile. So perhaps Matilda looks at this and is kind of like, do you know what, I could be a queen regnant.
1: Hmm. Mm. Mm. I liked her.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i do like her too i think she's a very interesting uh she's very interesting uh character to look at to be fair and mm-hmm. i think like i say so much of perhaps what comes down in either the history books or kind of public view is like oh she's arrogant oh she does this and so on and it's just not the case she was just a woman fighting for her inheritance mm-hmm. and medieval chroniclers as they will have not done much to kind of enhance her reputation
0: and does she play an important role in actually helping Henry to become king?
2: Yep, yeah, definitely. So she still has all her allies, all her networks from where she tries to claim the English throne. They all kind of transmit their loyalty to Henry, so they're able to help him um, accede the throne. And she uh, does the same with the church as well, in terms of like getting the bishops on Henry's side in Normandy. She helps with the transition um, by acting as his representative. So she does a lot to kind of uh, keep that continuity between the English nobility who are, support her, who are on her side, and making sure they
0: support Henry equally. So it feels that she sort of transitions into being a sort of a perfect Queen Mother figure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think she does and she's, you know, she is quite wise to be fair, she has a lot of experience even though she doesn't directly rule over England, she's able to use her diplomatic skills, her political savvy, her relationships with the church and the nobility to make sure Henry's rule goes more effectively. And she's strong, she's the queen mother you'd want to have on your side I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And like I say, she had um, a lot of experience in Germany as well from her first marriage. So it, like that she's around for a long time. So that longevity also helps when it comes to ruling. I think Henry's quite lucky in that he benefited from having two women who were able to be around for so long mm. and able to have these different experiences and manage ruling with. Yeah.
0: I was saying it was sort of it's easy for us to kind of focus on just a specific bit so for the empress it's it's from Henry the first dying to her not becoming queen but then you forget she was the holy roman empress before that
1: yeah (laughs) god so easy to forget that bit
2: yeah I think it gets forgotten because uh, she is so young when she goes and also it's outside the English sphere like you know Mm. we tend to focus a lot on what's happening in England or what's happening immediately adjacent i.e. what's going on in France and I think Germany or the Holy Roman Empire is just not a thing people think about as much.
0: Mm. Um, Does her mm. experience have an impact on how Queen's is on the one hand the fact that Henry was willing to name her as heir is interesting but then the fact that she gets rejected does that are we able to say if that has any kind of impact on later queens or
2: i think it's hard to know and it's difficult as well because we don't have an instance of a female heir pop up again until obviously um mary tudor and elizabeth so the kings are quite lucky in that respect that they managed to all produce varying amounts of sons and, uh, it doesn't pop up as an issue again so I wouldn't say it's necessarily has an impact on um, what we do because it's difficult to say as well would the Tudors have even looked back that far from Matilda? You know, oh. we've got a 400 year gap there.
1: Wow yeah, that's as far back as
0: them to us.
2: Yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mad. So moving on then from uh, Matilda to Eleanor, which is to say this is the one that everyone... <laughs> everyone asks about and there's probably nothing that's not been said or asked about Eleanor of Aquitaine do, do you think she deserves to loom so large or do you think she gets a little bit over
2: no I think she does deserve the attention she's got I mean I would say she is what, 80 or 82 when she dies that's an incredibly yeah. long life she's the only one to have been crowned queen of france and queen of england which is worthy of attention in itself she's a wealthy duchess she's an amazing kind of queen consort and she holds the country together and keeps everything stable for richard and john whilst um you know whilst richard's off uh being a military hero and john's struggling with the walls in France and so on. So I think she does deserve the attention she's got. She's a fascinating character. Uh, but I think, like you pointed out, we've got so much interest on her for someone who has so little in the sources. Mm. She, stri- she seems
1: to me to... Uh, we said this in the episode, that she operates on a, a different level to the kings that are going on underneath her. And she's sort of like... She feels to me like a queen whilst all of her sons and her husband were busy being prime minister at different times she was on she was sort of like the presidential level and uh, there was other stuff going on but she was pulling the strings just mastery
2: yeah i mean i think she works really well with henry ii um in the early years of their reign in england uh, mm. as the time goes on they grow apart and then obviously we've got the rebellion in 1173 that kind of breaks things up a bit um and her imprisonment and so on but i think definitely she does keep the show running at various mm. points and not just in england i would say she was region in maine for henry in the 1150s she works regent for richard whilst he's on crusade yeah i think having her as that kind of overarching figure who does keep things going is a good view to have of her
1: yeah yeah like um who was the equivalent in game of thrones g-man
0: <laughs> um oh um oh what's her name uh, diana rig yeah 12. diana rig are gone or whatever yeah
2: Tyrell, I can't remember what her first name is. Because I just thought of Natalie Dormer instead. (laughs) (laughs) Not that one, the other one.
0: What? She? Maybe she could be Isabella. Well, she played Anne Boleyn, so I can't get past that, really. Oh, yeah.
1: God, that seems ages ago. It It was ages ago.
0: Well, an interesting thing with Ellen, you mentioned how they worked quite well initially, and then she said then there's that little rebellion thing that happens. So what what happens between Henry and... And Eleanor. Is it Henry getting older and just sort of doing his own thing? Is there something that happens between them? What what goes on?
2: So it's Henry growing in confidence in his power and his ability to rule. As the eleven sixties go on, he realizes he doesn't need his mother anymore or as much. Um he stops depending on her for advice and counsel. And a similar thing happens with Eleanor. She's not as politically active because she's off bearing children and I think Henry decides he just wants to be able to rule all his lands and he wants Eleanor to step back kind of do her role as a mother and and not be involved anymore they also argue over the division of lands because they've got to divide their lands between Henry the young king, Geoffrey, Richard and John and Eleanor wants Aquitaine to go to Richard because she's uh, he's her favourite and there's kind of that tension there over who's going to get what when Henry dies, um, and I think yeah, just Henry's kind of will to rule over everything, have control over Eleanor, have control over her land and everything else.
1: So that was it. That because um, I sort of think that they were, they could have, they were after the same end, weren't they? Like that, that was at one point Henry's plan to give Richard.
2: Aquitaine. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but he, he, so he, so it, was it was just his, his control,
1: control that, that, that he, he needed, needed to be the be one, one putting the, putting the
2: strings. strings? Yeah. Um, mm. He tries to exert his authority in Aquitaine more and more, and um, I don't know how much you've looked into Aquitaine, but the barons aren't generally a fan of anyone who's not a native, so mm. they would much rather be getting their kind of ruling orders from their duchess, their native heiress, mm. Not from henry um eleanor does go back to aquitaine in 1168 and then it's after that we kind of see their relationship growing further and further apart until yeah the rebellion happens in 1173
1: Hmm. i mean it's effectively split already then isn't it she's queen of aquitaine really and he's king of england but what is he still getting money and stuff from it
2: yep yep he was still been getting uh some of the revenues from it and uh we Mm. notice after the financial records for this uh period are a bit patchy but yeah we could assume that he would be getting Mm. uh, the kind of revenues from all over the kingdom because he is duke of aquitaine as well he's not just Mm. by marrying eleanor he does become duke
1: yeah
0: i think it's amazing we've got any records at all it still blows my mind
1: (laughs) absolutely amazing
0: so i was going to ask then in terms of the her going to aquitaine do you think that's because henry needed someone who could rule because he couldn't quite manage it or does that indicate that they didn't really want to be in each other's company anymore
2: i think it's a bit of both i think eleanor is done with childbearing at this point so there's not a need for her to still be with henry and she does also need to be in Aquitaine because she's not been there for most of the last 14 15 years so there is definitely a need to bring her kind of back in hopes of managing the aquitanian barons
0: and then in 1173 we have the great rebellion um there's sort of some debate over this in terms of eleanor's involvement some historians say that basically it's all her she's the one that gets the sons and the king of france and everyone involved some others say that she maybe she's a bit more passive and she just kind of goes with the flow so what involvement do you think she has in the rebellion
2: i don't think she was as proactive in it as people have asserted i think she would have tried to reconcile her sons a bit further because ultimately this rebellion could have torn apart um You know, their relations with France, it could have disrupted the dynasty and everything that Henry and Eleanor have kind of built. But I do think if she didn't instigate it, she was still an active participant. She was kind of uh, reacting against Henry's attempt to control her. So, but I think it was possibly more to do with the sons and to do with the French kind of looking for an opportunity to... uh, be involved in English politics. From what
1: I I hear of her, I reckon, yeah, that she was aware of what damage it could have done, and she saw what clowns all of her children were, and she (laughs) just sort of thought, I'm going to have to get involved with this, because I know what talent we're working with here. (laughs) (laughs) And, and you know, I just feel like things are a bit safer when she's around. Otherwise, there's chaos. chaos. Yeah,
2: chaos erupted.
1: Like Angela Merkel, it's all right. She's around. Let's <laughs> everything's fine. The world's going crazy around us.
2: I mean, she is. She is a stabilizing force, and I think you know we know from her first marriage with Louis the Seventh how much she resents having her power curbed and not being able to work mm-hmm. as a queen. So it's perhaps unsurprising that if Henry tries the same tactic that she is going to kind of move against it. Mm. Um, and yeah, mm. and she was, she was very impressed in her children as well, you know, and I think it's perhaps uh, an instinct that she would have wanted to yeah have worked with them and mm. try to keep things under control.
1: Yeah. Certainly it would, would with my mom, I mean, she, she still texts me about dentist appointments when she's on the other side of the world she's very much like eleanor Paxton, actually,
2: <laughs> and she also got a large duchy and some castles that she's <laughs> well you no
1: know well we do call her office the h q <laughs> terrifying woman <laughs> so what I can't understand though is that she everyone agrees that richard is is her favorite like yes. just just is yeah but How do we know this? I can't believe that it's... I mean, I I love my kids equally. Today, I could have given the girl away. That's true. But ultimately, I'd never say which was my favourite.
2: So, uh, Colette Bowie, who's done a book on the daughters of Henry and Eleanor she goes through all the letters that exist from Eleanor to her Mm. children and kind of underlying um the words she used to describe them so dearest and um most treasured and Mm. uh, all the kind of like affectionate terms in the letters and I think she pops up that actually Richard and Joanna and John all receive kind of equal amounts of endearment in these letters But I think Eleanor's closeness to Richard and her push for him to be her heir in Aquitaine is kind of the most common thing we have for him being the favourite because she wants Richard to rule in Aquitaine and she's adamant about that the entire way through. It's Richard she wants. She doesn't Mm. want Geoffrey in there. She doesn't want John. She doesn't want to try and transmit it to one of her daughters. Mm. She wants it to be Richard. She
1: is good at recognising talent, isn't she? Because who is it she... Pushed forward that we, lo- or she's you said in an episode, G Man, that, that she saw something in this girl, and I was like, Oh, um, and I
2: said
0: Blanche of uh, Castile, yeah,
2: yeah,
1: she was cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: who goes on to be one might say a, a better, more successful queen than your current favourite, Isabella?
1: Yeah, that was disappointing when that uh, came in right at the end and cut my argument into. two. It was a facts. Yeah, those darn
2: facts. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Blanche is interest. She's an interesting comparison to Eleanor because she's also regent whilst her son goes off on crusade and kind of ties things together and holds on to everything.
0: So, mm. yeah, amazing time, amazing time. So, with the the Great Rebellion, then it seemed the notable thing about the aftermath is that Henry seems to basically let everybody off the hook apart from well apart from the king of scots and apart from eleanor who then finds herself in prison so why does she take the rap for all of this does henry think that she's behind it all or does he just see it as an excuse to get her out of the way
2: i think it's is a way of getting her out of the way and gives him the opportunity to try and fully subdue the aquitanian barons and he's probably then aware of how much power she can still wield. And he will see that as a threat to him being able to exercise his power. So he, yeah, puts her in old Sarum and then eventually she is allowed more kind of freedoms to progress around and stuff. But it's definitely a power play by Henry to try and put him right at the top and kind of, I know almost subjugate Eleanor, make her realize that she is the consort. Um, Mm and that her power should be below his.
0: Although he then obviously still has the problems with the sons thereafter, even without her being there to stir things up potentially. Do you think that she would have maybe been able to keep them in check or would she actually maybe have been egging them on that much further had she had that experience of the rebellion?
2: I don't think she would have egged them on any further after the first time, I think. (laughs) Given that she'd spent X amount of time, uh, I, we say in prison, she would have still had, you know, all her household and clothing and so on. It's not like she was living an absolute destitute life. Mm. But I can't see her having come out and thinking, do you know what? Let's rebel again and see if it works this time. <laughs> so, <laughs> fortunately, the son didn't learn from that. But. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then the amazing thing is after spending all this time well as you say, not actually in prison, but not at liberty, she then comes out an old woman, but just full of energy. So when Richard becomes king, and then obviously later with John as well, she just does a phenomenal amount for both of them, travelling all across Europe, ruling England at various times, and having sort of been denied this role for how for so long, how how was she able to just suddenly emerge and be this great ruler?
2: I was about to say, how dare you call her an old woman and then I realised she was 65 when <laughs> yeah. she came out. So I think it is. It's impressive. She's formidable. And I think she she's just passionate about looking after her sons, looking after her family and trying to keep Aquitaine as a powerful duchy. And... I think she's really invested in trying to keep this legacy that her and henry have built and to protect her son's inheritance much like matilda was doing when she was trying to transmit england to henry i think eleanor's got a similar situation where she wants to keep it all together for richard and then hopefully is as but then it obviously turns into john so i mean Obviously you've got the whole situation with uh, Arthur of Brittany and uh, Eleanor being besieged at Mirabeau and so on and it's she is like, you know, a strong kind of really active character right until the very last year almost when she finally manages to retire in a bit of peace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they say that though, don't they? When you retire and you slow down, that's what gets you <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, she was like, we say what well, eighty to eighty two at this That's point. Amazing, so I mean I don't feel we would get many of our eighty year olds kind of dashing about on horseback no. no. at this no. point
1: across. <laughs> She's a bit like um uh she feels like Joanna Lumley, uh humiliating <laughs> that um I don't know who it was, that minister on the on the steps when she told him that, what he was going to do for the Gurkhas and said, now what are you going to do? She's going to pay them more money, lovely. She's just this indomitable force that you can't say no to her, she's Joanna Lumley. I mean, um, whatever (laughs) name yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Amazing woman. She just keeps things ticking over, to be fair. I mean, as you probably know with Richard, he's not as invested in England. He wants to go off and do crusade and then comes back for all of six months and then goes, all right, (laughs) <laughs> Off to go fighting again. You take care of it. i and she's just like,
0: and then as queen mother, she then uh, overlaps with the next two uh, queen consorts. And you were saying how we, the chroniclers don't tend to take much interest in recording the relationships between them. And I think the most frustrating one where unless there is a bit more that you could tell us about there didn't seem to be any details of when Eleanor takes Berengaria all the way across the Alps through Italy to meet with Richard they go on this incredible journey together do we know anything about what transpires between them what their relationship was or is it all lost in the mists of time
2: it's all lost what you said is essentially just what the chroniclers have written they went over the alps and they did this and they traveled through italy um and went uh, down we don't know about um if they would have bonded on that journey if uh anything kind of happened afterwards we've got no correspondence between them or anything to kind of indicate if there was a harmonious relationship but given that Richard seems to very much prefer letting his mother rule and kind of act in his stead he doesn't give Berengaria a similar opportunity Mm. you know it's possible there may have been distance between them they may not have got along maybe Berengaria didn't want to try and build that much of a relationship and they just didn't have the opportunity to because they were at such separate um points all the time
0: it's frustrating, though, isn't it? It was such a must have been such an amazing journey to have gone on.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can. You'd almost think it would be something the chronicles list in more detail. You know, all this lush scenery they must have mm. travelled through.
1: Yeah, make a good um, uh, sort of. Although it's frustrating though that great big gap in the history would be ripe for exploiting for a film, mm. and you could sort of say based on a true story, but you know. <laughs> you could you could have so much fun with that whole journey, be amazing
2: yeah, all the overhead shots,
0: yeah, mm. through the Alps, yeah. lovely, so we'll come on to Berengaria uh, in her own right soon, but sort of from what you know about her and where she'd been previously in Navarre, can you imagine would she have been intimidated by Eleanor? Would she have held her own? Do you think, or
2: it's hard to predict because she I say when she's Queen Consort she doesn't get that attention in the Chronicles and it's easy I think to assume that Eleanor as such a dominating force would have intimidated her a bit but we've also got the issue that Richard doesn't really allow Berengaria much opportunity to kind of exercise power or um, work to establish herself either. But um, as we get on to, like, Berenguer is a much more dominant force in her dowager period. So, whether it is because she's free of the Plantagenet, she's able to exercise her will a bit more freely. Um, and just during her marriage, Eleanor just takes precedence.
0: Does she express any view on John's marriage to Isabella of Anguilla? Because that's a very controversial. Uh, yeah. match at the time do we know what she would have made of it
2: we don't i'm afraid and um, we've got nothing whatsoever between berenguer and isabella no indication of letters or that they would have met or kind of any opinions so i think berenguer is quite keen to distance herself from the plantagenets aside from the pursuit of her
0: money it's understandable get away from this crazy family <laughs> yeah <laughs> one last question i wanted to ask about um eleanor um, and you mentioned about the thing with Arthur of Brittany. Um, a lot of people might find it surprising, the fact that she so vehemently backs John uh, instead of her one of her grandsons in Arthur. Um, why is that? Why is she so firmly for the son rather than the grandson?
2: I think it's because it's the legitimate descent almost in that it's mm-hmm. going to another son. Uh, whereas if she kind of bucks that trend by giving it to arthur she's perhaps then opening it up to all sorts of kind of challenges and issues with people perhaps trying to claim the throne and i think she is fiercely devoted mother to her children and i know we said the john gets a lot of bad press but I believe Eleanor would have seen the virtues in keeping him as a king as well. I mean, much of what we have in terms of John facing difficulties during his reign to comes from to the fact that Richard left the country in such a poor state, so John didn't have mm. very much to work with. Mm. I think Eleanor's kind of will to keep her dynasty and her sons on the throne is why she would opt for John over Arthur. I remember Arthur's a lot younger as well at this point. So.
1: And no Arthur, it seems, is ever destined to be King of England.
2: <laughs> that's just what happens. <laughs> An unlucky name, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've noticed we've never had a Stephen since either, so that obviously wasn't oh, a yeah. oh, yeah. popular choice either. We stuck with the Henrys and the Edwards.
0: Yeah, a lot of those. Georges were doing well, weren't they? Uh, so that's Eleanor. So we move on to uh, the next consort, uh, Berengaria of Navarre. Now, if anybody looks at your twitter profile they will see that you label yourself as hashtag team berengaria
2: yes yeah.
0: so you're a berengaria fan
2: she is my fave she has been so overlooked and again like eleanor and like medieval queens of this period we have so little kind of on them but you know she's become such a force she's such an incredible kind of figure to look at after she becomes um a widow because she negotiates with philip augustus and the lamon she fights for her dowerland so she's got this tenacity this strength of character which we rarely don't get to see in her as um Queen of England, and it's just disappointed kind of reading up at her and people are like, oh, she's forgotten, oh, she's the shadowed Queen of England, and so on. And I think she's just a really interesting character. That actually, there's more to her than people kind of think. I mean, when you say Berengaria of Navarre, most people, people will be like, who? Mm. Be like, what? You know, people know Richard, people know the Lionheart, but um yeah, not so much for Berengaria.
0: Mm. I think also it's that anglocentric thing, isn't it that because she well because she doesn't come to England as queen, which is quite extraordinary, but the fact that she goes off and does all this other stuff afterwards generally the English view as well that's not really interesting anymore, is it because it's, it's somewhere else someone else's country now
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I think part of the reason why we struggle with um, sourcing for her is when she's away on crusade, because that's often quite outside the English sphere. So people are focusing on the big military exploits and what's going on in England. They're not so fussed with what the king's wife is doing while she's kind of pottering around on the crusade.
0: And that's an extraordinary thing, because obviously Eleanor um, goes on a crusade and manages to pick up quite a lot of scandalous gossip about her conduct, but... You know, Baron Carrier goes on a crusade, you think surely that would be worthy of more mention.
1: Mm, Yeah, definitely. I love that. I mean, yeah, that would get people in.
2: Yeah, you would have thought so, but no, obviously we get the records of her um, marriage ceremony and her being crowned Queen of England, and then we kind of know that she was with Joanna of Sicily, uh, Richard's sister, but otherwise, that's it. We don't know what they would have done. We don't know where they were at certain points, and then we just know that she comes back to France um, via Italy so disappointing lack of sources there
0: but mm. so does that indicate that she was just very proper and does what queen consorts are meant to do that no one thinks it's interesting enough to write about, whereas obviously Eleanor presumably doesn't do what she was meant to do. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think so. I kind of argued in um, the research that I've done that Berengaria fits this model of like the chaste proper wife, even though she doesn't have children, which is the main point of the Mm. Queen Consort at this stage. She doesn't do anything to cause scandal, and therefore people just don't pick up on it. Whereas Eleanor, oh, actually, Matilda with the fight for the throne... Eleanor and the kind of sexual scandals that have popped up, and Isabella, for the same reason, they all get a bit more attention because the chroniclers think they've done something remarkable, whereas Berengaria, poor love just doesn't she may have just mm-hmm. potted around until her widowhood
0: because it seems like on paper she's sort of other than the children element, she's sort of pious she's um seems to be pretty effective in terms of governance when she's given that opportunity. She's got she's got really all the and stubbornly defensive for her sort of her rights as well. She seems like she's got everything on paper that you'd want from a queen consort. So why doesn't Richard make use of her?
1: Hmm.
2: I think Richard doesn't make use of her as a regent to start off with because he trusts Eleanor. Like Eleanor is a tried and tested ruler. She's worked as a regent before. He knows England's in secure hands with her. With Berengaria, she's not, as far as we know, had that previous experience of governance. She's new to um the kind of realm. She's new to the position of Queen. And it just makes more sense for him to leave Eleanor in charge why he doesn't give her more power later whether it's the same thing that he decides that Eleanor's the better option uh why he doesn't apportion her lands is that because Eleanor's kind of dominating and saying nope I still want all these lands because they are mine until I die um so or it could have been marital disharmony and a bit of differing personalities and Obviously, we've caught a kind of scandal around sexuality as well, and Richard, which may have impacted their marital partnership and their ability oh, yeah. to come together as well.
0: So what, what can we say then about Richard and this question? So his suggestions about whether he might have been homosexual or had homosexual relationships, What what can we say about that?
2: So the basis for this is largely based from Roger of Haldon's chronicle Um, he records that a hermit tells Richard remember the destruction of Sodom and abstain from illicit acts otherwise you're going to be punished and Roger of Halden also says that Philip Augustus King of France and Richard share a bed and this has been used as kind of like evidence of like homosociality so like social bonds between same sex people or homosexuality Um, But this has largely come down to us from early 20th century historians. Most kind of modern scholars kind of rebuke this claim that Richard is um, homosexual. We've not actually got any strong literary evidence to prove otherwise. Um, So, I mean, I love looking at royal sexualities and stuff, and it would be amazing if we managed to uncover something for uh Richard either way, but there's nothing substantive, just this record of a hermit kind of telling them off.
1: There's not much to champion there either, is it? He's not gonna be a um uh a uh idol of the uh, gay right mov- gay rights movement with his uh assassination of seven thousand or whatever it was in uh Syria. Four thousand? Seven thousand, doesn't really matter. Many thousands of people.
0: He's not the nicest guy. No
2: as well though we know richard has an illegitimate child john gillingham has kind of said you know there's evidence of his lustful nature and so on i think if i recall this correctly there's a record he may have raped someone which is um you know kind of evidence of him not being gay so Mm -hmm. yeah so it's a difficult one to call until we've got further evidence, but it seems unlikely that it would have been differing sexualities, which is why they didn't get along.
0: Though mm. it seems surprising, which I suppose is one of the way, reasons why maybe that still seems a sort of a tempting thing to label him with. That He seems so bizarrely not bothered about siring an heir. Like he waits so mm. long to marry at all, and then doesn't seem to make much of an effort with Berengaria, and actually, effectively gets sort of told off by a bishop for not sleeping with his wife enough. Yeah, yeah. So, what was he up to then? If it wasn't that he, uh, it wasn't that he was gay. He doesn't annul Berengaria, but he just sort of sends her off. Did he just not care about the dynasty? Was he just focused on himself? What What was he doing?
2: I think he is just keen on being a warrior. I think um, that's his primary focus because he's obviously not that interested in ruling England he doesn't come he only comes back for a short period of time and he doesn't spend a lot of time trying to rule the regions in France either he's there fighting so I think that is his focus he didn't particularly want to become a king and he's not that interested in the dynasty either whether it's a case of he really didn't like Berengaria, and perhaps that's why she's um, shelved off, or so on. But like you say, if that was the case, why did he not annul their marriage? Kind of later in the eleven nineties, once the Anglo Navarrese alliance kind of dries up a little bit, and find a more suitable partner. We'll never know.
1: <laughs> just didn't fancy her, I reckon. <laughs> I think Sir Charles and Diana. He just um, wanted to go off and. Make Cornish jam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they had kids, didn't they? Oh well, you know. Other so, than that, ne- <laughs> it nearly
0: works. Perfect match. Um, So back to Berengaria herself, then. So you said about the um, the Navarrese match. So what what do we know about Berengaria in Navarre or sort of just Navarre? What was it that would have attracted Richard to marrying Berengaria in the first place?
2: Yeah, so Navarre kind of sits on the southern border of the Angevin land, so at this point they've got all the way down to Aquitaine and Gascony, and Navarre kind of abuts them. So they need the alliance in order to kind of protect um, the land, so they've got kind of a military asset whilst Richard's away on Crusade, and um, that is the kind of primary motivation, just someone who's going to help protect their borders. And... Berengaria is just seen as the likely candidate for that alliance. I mean, Richard was betrothed to Alice or Alyssa France, however you want to say it, um, beforehand. And he obviously sees that actually that alliance with Navarre is going to be much more use. And it is useful. Sancho comes, uh, Berengaria's brother, comes to the rescue twice whilst Richard's away to defend the borders so it's definitely an alliance from that perspective which worked it's just not an alliance that worked in terms of producing heirs or um, rulership mm. Mm.
0: and it's sort of it seems that the whole thing with the um, well I guess the Kings, that it seems to be sort of these boys and their mothers yeah. and <laughs> just this sense that Richard had got the woman that he needed in the form of his mother and almost didn't see a need for another one <laughs>
2: It is a little bit, yeah, it's um uh yeah, so it is really interesting looking at the relationship between Eleanor and Richard and John and Matilda and Henry because yeah, both all three of those kings do kind of look at their mothers as kind of an assistant ruler or someone else they need. I and mean, John obviously depends on Eleanor quite a lot and doesn't involve Isabella in the early years. So yeah poor berengaria <laughs>
0: <laughs> and she never comes to england as queen consort would that, would people have thought that was odd at the time that the queen of england hadn't come to england or would they were they just not paying her any attention
2: it would have been odd especially given richard's recrowned when he comes back from crusade so that would have been like a vital opportunity for her to have come to england kind of meet her subjects she would have had an opportunity to build networks and alliances and so on that would have been a really good moment to have put her in the public consciousness and mm. she just isn't but it's just eleanor kind of taking center stage mm.
1: how she does she's eclipsed a bit there isn't she like, imagine if she was at uh, one generation different; she'd have been. Well, Henry, maybe yeah, she'd have fared better with hen- being hen- married to Henry, Henry the Third. We'd have had a light more keenly shone upon her than being in the shadow of Eleanor.
2: Yes, definitely so.
0: So they have a sort of a bit of a reconciliation after um, Richard's coronation when he heads back to france so do you think there was any possibility that maybe as eleanor was getting older and maybe looking to retire that if richard hadn't died in 1199 she might have found herself given a bit more land a bit more power or do you think richard would have just kept it all to himself
2: i feel richard would have just kept it all to himself i think if there had been up op- if richard had been as invested in that relationship with Berengaria, he would have made more of an effort to have um, included her in things, to have maybe given her opportunities in France to rule over some of the Angevin domains whilst Eleanor was focused in England Um, and he just doesn't seem to have done so so I can't see that necessarily changing on Eleanor's death. I think he would have left um, England in control of a Regency council, kind of like he did when he went on crusade and yeah Berenguer would have still remained um, relatively ostracised say he's an interesting character like we say we know so much about him being you know great military warrior but not, not a great king
0: <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the break that she does get with Richard is that he dies because after that she sort of suddenly seems to flower and find her feet find her role find her independence um, so you can tell us a bit about that how she becomes a much more independent and strong character
2: yeah, so after Richard's death, she does actually meet Eleanor at Front Row Abbey in Sheenon, and it's the evidence of them there, it's kind of, I see it as Ferengura trying to show that she's still here, you know, she deserves her lands. she's putting her um like kind of face back in the game, so to speak, and uh, trying to exercise her power. This doesn't work you know Eleanor and John kind of focus on ruling England and then John marries Isabella so Berengaria then chooses to negotiate with Philip Augustus um, and what she agrees to do is to exchange her Norman dower land so the lands that would have been supplied to her to live off as a dowager queen um, in exchange for Le Mans and she successfully does this like Philip is quite happy to um exchange the lands with her and then she's in Le Mans from around 120 to 1203 until her death in 1230 and while she's there she then starts petitioning John and Henry III after John's death um, for her dower lands the papacy get involved and she also has like a number of ecclesiastical disputes as well with the local bishops in Le Mans. So,
1: yeah, that was brilliant that bit. <laughs> somehow she she get kept having the was this right, Jimon? This is the right queen? She kept having the Pope on side somehow.
0: somehow. Yeah, this was one of the things we're really interesting to find out about because obviously she spends um, a few months in Rome after the Crusades. Oh yeah, and then we have these two popes in a row neither of whom were the ones that were in rome when she was there uh, two successive popes that support her i mean supporting her against john doesn't seem so surprising but the fact that they support her like against the cathedral church in le mans so how is she able to get such consistent strong support from the papacy
2: yeah so at this time the papacy do commonly come to the defense of those who they view as vulnerable or in need of support so as a royal widow and as someone who is solo um by herself berengar was kind of in need of someone to come and defend her interest regarding her lands now uh brother sancho kind of decides that he wants to focus on the alliance with england and john rather than sorting out his sister's kind of finances and welfare therefore the Pope's likely to come in and intervene Um, and they're not altogether successful I mean as we've seen there's lots of letters showing the Pope kind of petitioning John and Henry to give Berengaria her dower lands Um, but it's not until 1226 that she's finally granted an agreement Um, but it's pretty consistent to have the papacy intervening for the best part of 25 to 30 years really on her Mm. behalf so i think they look at her as someone who is kind of alone she's not got strong familial ties she's not got someone who's looking after her interests and they obviously with an alternative agenda of meddling in european politics but also kind of looking at her as someone they can protect and uh, defend
1: it struck me as the sort of situation like in the 19th century British Empire, you'd have things the messages took or news to travel so slowly that the things would change on the ground so quickly that you just they just supported her because they were the one she was the one that they knew. And that's all the information they had. <laughs> like, she's our team, right? We'll just support her for a bit until we learn some more, and then,
0: and then we'll get some more information. Uh, oh no, that was the following on, wasn't it? That was Isabella. Well, yeah, that was going to say. I suppose in sort of Berengaria's um, defence in this position, posed the fact that they keep on supporting her presumably also indicates that she is seen as being appropriate enough to be worthy of support or that she's got the diplomatic skills to gain that support because we with Isabella that we'll come to talk about it seemed like initially she was maybe as mm-hmm. a widow going to get a bit of support from the papacy but once they saw what she started getting <laughs> up to they were then like oh I don't know about this actually you maybe should watch what you're doing so is Berengaria she knows what she's doing presumably she's not just a weak uh, widow that needs the charity she's finding the support that she needs
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't have the letters from Berengaria to the papacy, but it would have been really interesting if they have survived, because then we could kind of look at the language she uses and how um, she does petition the Pope to work for her defence for so long. Um, But I think it is, yeah, you know, a sign of her kind of strength, her political savvy, her diplomatic networks, that she does keep them on side for so long, and yeah, as we get to in the moment with Isabella, it kind of plays out very differently when she's acting as a widow and then marries Hugh
0: mm-hmm. and then also Isabella and uh, Isabella and um, Berengaria uh, commissions her own effigy uh in Le Mon, which I also thought was quite an interesting thing because Isabella gets one, but that's provided by her son years later so what's us can we learn anything about the effigy in terms of what that could tell us about Berengaria and how she saw herself?
2: yeah so the effigy at lamont she's holding a little book and on that book is another small figure holding a book so it's almost like a mirror of a mirror um <laughs> yeah. and i think that kind of shows her as you know a virtuous woman almost you know a woman who was pious who was um focused on literacy on on literature sorry um and kind of just being the ideal model of the wife, that kind of chaste figure. And I think it's the fact it's at uh, Po, which she founded, and the fact she was managed to be buried there as well, um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't finished till after her death, um, just shows like the importance of it to her, the fact she has that effigy and that it was in her place. It was all very much calculated.
0: Mm. Like, we've got some good feedback on having done her episode of people who weren't really expecting anything from her and actually think yeah. quite enjoyed hearing about her and the consensus seemed to be that it just showed that Richard was a bit of an idiot for not, <laughs> not making more use of her. So yeah. how how do you think she should be remembered?
2: I think she should be remembered, not necessarily as someone who was exceptional but as someone who did hold power that someone who was a really dominant figure as a widow and that it is just an perhaps unfortunate set of circumstances that while she was consort she was neglected and had few opportunities to rule um and she was just faced with circumstances those being you know Eleanor and being away on crusade that she just wasn't able to exercise power further so although she's perhaps not remarkable because there's a lack of scandal or things attached to her i think she would have been the model of a kind of chaste wife and someone who was determined to kind of protect her rights i'll I'll write it all in the book
0: (laughs) Uh, so if we move on then to the last of the uh the queens the andrefin queens isabella of angouleme I so suppose that's actually something that she's got, which I'm um, just realising, talking about her there with Berengaria. The difference with Berengaria is that she's the only one of these queens, actually, isn't she, who doesn't kind of have any claim to land in her own right? Because the Empress obviously was claiming England, Eleanor had got Aquitaine, and then Isabella is the heiress and ultimately Countess of Angoulême. So is that part of Berengaria's issue that she doesn't actually have anything that's hers?
2: Yeah, that is an issue as well. Like I we say, Eleanor's strength and power comes from the fact she has Aquitaine, and Berengaria has nothing to draw upon, and Richard doesn't apportion her any lands for her to live off as consort. So, yeah, that's definitely a struggle. But then with Isabella and Anguillem, John doesn't give her access to it. Fair. He kind of keeps it to himself. So, it doesn't necessarily stand Isabella in any good stead until her widowhood. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So Isabella, also probably not one of the more famous of uh, the queens of England, but again, Ali was particularly (laughs) uh, set back by her dramatic life. Now, she's one that doesn't have uh, a biography of her, at least not one that I could see. So is there a reason for this? Is there a reason that she's been neglected as well? Or is she the next one after you've done Berengaria? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I've got a colleague who's working on her so I think she's probably uh, more likely to do Isabella <laughs> of Gloucester and Isabella of Angoulême as a kind of dual biography um but I think Isabella of Angoulême it's a case of again there's a real lack of sources um because what survives for her in French is like collected chapters and bits and pieces there's just not people just haven't wanted to focus on her but then there's a lot of queens that don't have their own biographies and so on um, I think people just haven't wanted to dig into her as much, maybe it's because of her association with John, who knows but um, yeah, there's just Weird, isn't There it? is yeah, there's a source work out for her, again, not loads of it but there is enough to do a proper biography of her and it would be fascinating to look at her more when she's in Angoulême
0: Mm. And her life afterwards. Um, quite sort of going back to the almost the start for her, quite a horrible aspect of her queenship is just how young she potentially was uh when she marries John. Um how was this actually unusual? Would people have been judging John as we would judge him now, or was that actually a bit more standard for sort of royal or noble marriages at the time?
2: It was standard. We think she's around twelve, I mean Eleanor is presumably about 13 or something when she marries Louis Seventh. so it's not an unusual age to be married it would have perhaps been an unusual age for it to have been consummated so for example we don't have Henry the Third born until a few years later into the marriage so it's perhaps understanding that um, the, mar- the age for getting married was fine but not necessarily for being a proper husband and wife so to speak
0: and a lot of the chroniclers talk about sort of John lusting after her and imply that the sort of marriage and early years of it is effectively all because of that. Is that just chroniclers hating John or was he that awful? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, pretty much. So, um one of the things we kind of looked at recently is the fact that uh chroniclers will choose to criticise the king by criticising the queen, so it's kinda of like a backward criticizing uh, the king via the back door kind of thing so by writing all this stuff about um isabella being like a sorceress or a witch and like you know keeping john in bed all day and you know it's making him look like an irresponsible king but it's also not obviously being very nice to isabella and kind of castigating mm-hmm. her as a bad influence and a poor queen and so on
1: oh making it so uh yeah so it's, it's criticizing her, but the implication is that you know he's gone along with it if he's in bed all day.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Isabella, are we you saying that how you know she is sort of used in a way as you know criticizing her is criticizing John, um, and the marriage, of course, is controversial. Is seen by seems to be seen by contemporaries as being kind of the cause of uh, England's downfall in this period with the loss of territory. So sh- would she have been an unpopular queen because of this?
2: Yes, I think so i think um the fact that john's not capable or um of raising all the taxes like the treasury's empty when he comes to the throne he's beset with perhaps some poor political decision making and he's got a disunited country against the very united kind of french forces and Isabella, although she's brought Angoulême and it's kind of wealth that would support John, she's still not going to be viewed as a particularly popular queen either. The Counts for Angoulême before have kind of like gone between parties, so to speak. They're not usually Hmm. faithful to one particular side or the other. So I think she would have been viewed with a bit of suspicion.
1: Hmm. And would she have been less popular in light of the fact that Eleanor went before? Was Eleanor popular?
2: I wouldn't know. Um, Mm. To be fair, it's difficult to kind of ascertain popularity other than Mm. what the chroniclers kind of write about them. Um, Mm. But we know Eleanor did kind of give generously in terms of... uh, to the nobility in terms of churches and so on she found quite a lot so it mm. would be plausible that perhaps eleanor was kind of supported and again she's around for so long you'd almost imagine that if people did hate her we'd have more kind of written <laughs> about her saying yeah. how unpopular she is over that period
0: yeah isabella and berengaria seem to be kind of about as different characters as you could hope to find in a kind of a succession of queen consorts but in a way they've got this sort of similarity in that in terms of their time as queen, Isabel is yet another example of someone who just seems to be denied any role whatsoever so is this the same story of just the kings that hold power and aren't really interested in their queens, is it because she was young or does John kind of like her less as she forms her own personality?
2: I think in the early years John's obviously still very dependent on Eleanor after Eleanor's death and then once Isabella kind of starts bearing children it's difficult to think why he wouldn't have involved her more. Obviously she's with the English court from such a young age so she would have grown up with their kind of policies and ideals and um, influence so it's not like she's bringing a wholly like kind of foreign perspective to the court. Uh, so I think it is just John trying to keep power for himself and not wanting to leave Isabella as a regent. But There's also little opportunities actually for Isabella to kind of act as a ruler because John stays put a lot of the time. It's difficult, but I think it is just largely a case of John needing the money that he would have got from Isabella's lands um, for the war in France and he just doesn't choose to apportion any of it back to her.
0: So he basically sort of steals the land and money from his sister-in-law, steals the land and money from his (laughs) (laughs) wife.
2: I'm not doing much for redeeming his reputation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's sometimes said that one of the best things he does is uh, die in the midst of the Barons' War because it sort of enabled people to had the personal grief with him to then throw their support Mm. behind uh, his young son, Henry III. Now, we might in fact we would have really expected or maybe we shouldn't have done but we might have expected to have seen Isabella um, as you know she's still quite young at this point isn't she when John dies she might have hoped to have been uh, part of the Regency a very dominant figure maybe for the next 10 20 years but she's given again no role in the Regency for Henry III so what happens there is it a very deliberate omission or is this just not something that would have occurred to them
2: it is a deliberate omission they choose to focus the power in um, the men who kind of surround John on his deathbed like the kind of government he's got around him and there's no places made for Isabella John doesn't leave anything kind of in his wills or anything in his documents um, to say that Isabella should be given a position and the government aren't keen on including her either whether that's because they don't trust her or whether they just want to um, keep the power to themselves we don't know but she's excluded um and it's kind of expected to just be a sidelined queen mother really to just focus on raising her children and um turning up for courtly appearances and all the rest of it so it's perhaps unsurprising that she chooses to go back to Angouleme when no place is made for her at the english court mm-hmm. <clears throat>
0: Now, we said how, you know, the Matilda and Eleanor were such strong and effective uh, queen mothers and sort of relentlessly fighting the good fight for their sons. Um, it seemed fair to say that Isabella not quite in the same mould when it comes to being a queen mother. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, uh, Isabella could have done so much with being in Angoulême and trying to support Henry, but I think Isabella's first priority is Isabella in this case um, whereas Eleanor and Matilda's priorities are themselves, but they do also focus on the dynasty a bit more, um, whereas as we kind of see with Isabella's choice to marry like her daughter's betrothed and um, Hugh of Lusignan and disputes she gets into with the papacy and then the French kings and the English court and so on for the rest of her life, it is very much I think that she's focused on her and Hugh and their kind of area of influence, their bit of rule, their region where they're going to rule and not necessarily being the best queen mother.
0: It just seemed extraordinary what she gets up to once she goes to Angoulême, she say you know she sort of signs with the French at some times, and then shes signed with the English and she's fighting for money. She marries sort of one of the worst people she could possibly have married her as you said, her own daughter's betrothed kind of imprisons her daughter a bit or stops the English getting her back um and then even sort of cementing a rebellion against the French and this assassination plot like was was she slightly unhinged or Ugh. Is yeah. she a sort of is she like an appropriate consort for John in that the chroniclers just always cast her in the worst possible light?
2: I think she has suffered quite a lot from what the chroniclers have written about her, to be fair. I mean from the actual letters we've got which she would have um dictated, we can see her strength of character coming out that it was her driving you know, these decisions to marry Q or to be in disputes with the various courts and so on. But she has been treated quite shoddily by John for several years, so perhaps it's not that much of a surprise that she wants to just go and protect her own interests in Angoulême. Admittedly, she could have perhaps stayed a bit... um, I don't necessarily want to say quieter, but, you know, she could have (laughs) stayed and just focused on Angoulême rather than trying to fight for... Um, between the French and English kings but also she wants more lands to live off part of her problem is that she's given two um, grants of dower and she wants both of them when the second grant was meant to replace the first grant but she's (laughs) decided she wants to have all of the lordships um, that were promised to her by John regardless of the fact that they're now in French hands so um yeah, and that's where part of the kind of power plays come between because she wants both of them to give her the lands. Both of the kings are like, no <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> And then um something that we we're particularly interested in said the um the sort of rebellion against France France in twelve forty one. How is she able to sort of wield it? So it's going back to Eleanor, I suppose, with the Great Rebellion or it feels like that a bit. So is that because she's got this great force of character or is it just that there are lots of people looking for an opportunity and Isabella and Hugh sort of present them with one
2: I think it's a case of people looking for um the opportunity and uh, you know Isabella and Hugh for whatever reason just don't um like I say, stay put in Angulem. So I think it is just a case of they feel they've been slighted. They want to have the lands that they've been promised. They're really just keen to kind of defend their interest. And yeah, so she gets involved in the rebellion to try and um, get her rights back. So it's not a similar rebellion in terms of Eleanor's because Eleanor's was about her power being curbed. Mm. Isabella's not having her power being curbed but she's not being given what she thinks she deserves um, and she feels she's been slighted by the courts.
0: I suppose similar to Eleanor it doesn't go terribly well but then she takes it or she's alleged to take it an extra step further and plots to actually assassinate the <laughs> that blows my mind that bit is that likely or does that sound like a chronicler just giving us some juicy salacious gossip
2: that sounds like a chronicler being a gossip i know (laughs) i know know. um i mean it just again like eleanor it seems unlikely admittedly isabella's possibly more proactive in defending her rights than eleanor is but it just seems so unlikely that isabella would uh choose to try and assassinate the king you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's mad isn't it yeah
2: um and again the evidence we've got for this is so um kind of spurious in a way it's unsubstantiated It's like, when you look at the Chronicles, you've got all this juicy medieval gossip and you're like, this is amazing. And you have historians come along and go, actually, well...
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But um, Yeah, so unlikely, I feel that uh, she would have tried to assassinate the King of France.
0: (laughs) So why does she then um, end up at Fontevra, do we think? If she isn't sort of fleeing from being put on trial for trying to kill the king. Why does she decide to end her days as a nun at I mean,
2: fontevra has got quite a strong connection with the Plantagenets through Henry and Eleanor, and both Richard and John kind of um, patronise it. And I think for Isabella, it's almost a sensible place of refuge if she was kind of under threat with... Um, not necessarily from the French, but in terms of she's mucked up her power plays a little bit, yeah. she's no longer secure, then an abbey or a religious institution does make the most sense to kind of go and retire to um and she's mm. there for i think two yeah two years she's at bontebra, so perhaps she wasn't going thinking she was at the end of her life when she chose to retire, but perhaps she had realised if I'm in Bonterreau, I can't be touched here, and this is a better place to stay.
1: So fully a nun, or was there like this class of uh, runaway nobility that sort of put on the clothes but actually drank wine and, I don't know, whatever they did, knit?
2: Yeah, (laughs) so you do get many kind of royal women who um, retire to the Abbey, and no, they're not becoming fully... um, Religious, so to speak, you do get a couple of uh, say, royal daughters or so on who have become abbesses and kind of take the veil and mm. everything else. But um, in this case, it's so with people like Eleanor and Isabella, it's kind of a quiet retirement home for them.
1: Nice, like, um, Thatcher spent her last years in the Ritz, didn't she? <laughs> Something like that.
2: <laughs> Quite a change from the church, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: So is, is it then more, maybe more, because it seems surprising that Isabella goes to Fontoreau having sort of not really had a personal association and not having really been much of a Plantagenet for her dowager period. But is it maybe more notable than the fact that Berengaria doesn't want to go to Fontoreau and associate, associate herself with that, maybe more than the fact that Isabella does?
2: Yeah, I think the fact that Beringaria chooses not to go there is, again, indicative that she didn't want to have any association with the Plantagenets, and she was quite happy with the abbey she was founding in Le Mans, and that was going to be her place, her area of influence, where she was going to be buried. Um, So that's keeping her well away from the Plantagenets. Whereas Isabella... um, is a place that has associations with other royal families, but yeah, for the Plantagenets, it's perhaps a sign that Isabella's maybe reuniting at some point, maybe just, (laughs) um, you know, going back to her first familial ties instead of the Lusignons.
0: You won't have heard this yet, obviously, because we haven't um, published the episode yet, but Ali and I disagreed on our um, our final judgment about uh, Isabella uh, and the Rex Factor. What where would you have, what would what would you say in terms of whether she's got that certain something or?
2: No, um, it's difficult because her, a bit like Garrett, her life is so much more active when she's no longer queen. So perhaps yeah. as a consort, she wouldn't have the rex factor, I guess. But her life. Of- yeah, but her life—I think she would because she got up to quite a lot um, in her second marriage. Obviously, she has a whole other host of children as well. She <laughs> has some sons with Hugh. And
1: did not know that. Did I know that, Graham? Yes. Did we say that? Oh, we said that. Okay. And what do they get up to? <laughs> Anything interesting, or do they just disappear off to sort of flood the nobility with different genes?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, she has nine children with Hugh yeah and she had five with um John, so
1: goodness me, that is Rex factor worthy isn't it? Nine children, no wonder she was such a. Hard case. <laughs> Honestly, my, my daughter was crying this afternoon. I said, what's wrong with her? I said, D- she's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's after two. By the ninth, she would have done nothing.
2: Yeah. Um, the Lusignan children are more of like a fawn in Henry III's side because they start asking him for money and places and all the rest of it. Uh, it's like half brothers to the king. So, mm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Just use it as a way to get into bars and stuff.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, if we sort of look at the uh, look at them as a whole, then um, this group, how do, does sort of queenship develop in any way in this period? Is it different to what had gone before? Is what comes after different? What 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 do they tell us about queenship in this period?
2: So, I think what we kind of learn about queenship in this period is just how dependent it is on like having a good relationship with the monarch um for instance if you look at queen other queens of england they are able to that um come before they can wield more power and i think what we really hone in on is by looking at their relationships it's just how dependent it is that they need to have a good relationship with the king they need to have their own lands and revenues and so on um and But yeah, the will of the king rarely dominates and affects the queen's ability to kind of rule. Again, like I say, power fluctuates. It's not consistent that Eleanor doesn't exercise power all the way through her reign. Obviously, she has the imprisonment as well. Um, And Berenguer and Isabella just aren't given the choices. And I think so much of that, Eleanor being a different case, is just dependent on her kind of background the fact she has her first marriage the fact she has aquitaine and so on but it's not exceptional for them to wield power at all you know they were lots of pretty powerful noble women and queens around in this period so i think it kind of what we can see from queenship looking at these kind of three four women Is that women are quite capable of ruling, building networks of people, uh, working on behalf of their children, acting as the main ruler whilst the king's away, and so on.
1: It was just a shame that uh, that uh, it takes another three or four hundred years for that groundwork to be, you know, tested. Because it would have—I mean, after such a run of powerful consorts. It would be interesting to see whether a um if a Matilda situation came up again um whether she'd have been accepted this time around,
2: yeah, I mean obviously the issue with the Tudors, which I'm not a massive expert on, so um is obviously the religious differences with Mary and Elizabeth, which divide people perhaps a bit more than the fact mm. that they're both women, um yeah, you know. I mean, they seem to be a lot more kind of regimented in following the line of succession.
0: What I was just going to say is, what is with all these sort of tempestuous marriages in this period? Because it seemed like Eleanor, not Eleanor, um, Jeffrey and Matilda didn't mm. uh, seem to go on terribly well. Henry and Eleanor obviously have a little bit of a falling out as they go on. Richard and Berengaria maybe not tempestuous, but not necessarily massively positive. It's sort of, I don't know. It, it and feels John like John and have- Isabella. Yeah, it feels like you have quite a few in a row where you'd have thought, you'd have hoped that one of them they might have clicked quite nicely.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Eleanor and Henry did work well together at the beginning. And, you know, they chose to marry each other. Obviously, Eleanor marries him eight weeks after she gets divorced from Louis. So I think there's a strong inkling <laughs> of like personal choice there. It's just their personalities as they matured, as Henry grew in confidence, kind of tore them apart um, in some ways. And yeah, Richard and Berengaria, we don't really know, but we can kind of assume it wasn't harmonious. Um, I think also... In this period, you kind of get the government being further established, you get admin stuff mm. being established and so on, and that curbs the Queen's power a bit more. So actually, as you get, again, about a century or two later, Queen's still have lands and bits and pieces to kind of rule over, but the King's got a lot more kind of centralised authority. He's got a government now that will um, do things, so perhaps it doesn't matter as much if the marriage is tempestuous or not. Obviously, you've got Isabella of France as so a probably key example yeah. of <laughs> uh, another Slight queen tensions. consort that causes a bit of scandal.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, a sort of a, a an overall uh, queenship uh, question for you in uh, Rex Factor, which is a, a, a tricky one, potentially, or maybe it's an easy one. Who do you reckon, for our, our series as a whole, for the consorts, who do you think deserves to be considered uh the best of all all the queen consorts.
2: Ooh um I feel the easy answer is just to say Eleanor, isn't it?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um No, I couldn't pick Berengaria. I think as much as I love her because um she's she doesn't do enough as Queen Consort. Um no, I'm. I'm gonna champion Eleanor. I think. I think mm. Matilda of Boulogne is very good for Stephen, um, in terms of defending his interests and so on. She's a pretty cool queen consort as well. Mm. Um, but gonna have to plump for Eleanor, aren't I? You know, she is the. She is the one. She's the one people know for a good reason.
1: Yeah. It's just. It's just annoying, isn't it? Though. <laughs> So the greatest boxer of all time, top ten, it's always Muhammad Ali at the top. There, was, you know, like yeah, we know that, but the others, the interesting bit.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. Yeah, I mean, Matilda of Scotland's also quite an interesting one. I don't know if you gave her the Rex factor or not. We did. We? we did. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Who's she? <laughs> Who's <Which one? laughs> that? That was um, Henry the First's first wife, the one who has got the Saxon royal. Yeah, blood
1: oh to join the yeah mm. yeah
2: yeah because I was going to say she's a pretty interesting one for that reason in terms of like kind of being legitimising the throne and so mm. on and um, yeah. her religious activities and whatever it's,
1: it's nice that she's needed for something other than giving birth <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, a change
2: who would you pick so far now you're done
0: well Eleanor's got the best score so far. Okay. So I think she's uh, she's the one to beat. Um, who did
1: I? Who did I like then? What? The. I I Graham is my memory <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> who Who do
0: I like, Graham? Which is. I mean, I think you do like Eleanor. You've uh, liked yeah. Isabella, but I I didn't say yes to Isabella. But there's some
1: early ones I thought were
0: well, good. Um. Where well, controversial. Elfrith, yeah, yeah, his wife. Emma of Normandy.
1: Yeah. And the Auntie Emma, who just didn't have a book written about her. George Foreman, she was, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah.
0: Who was that? That was Elf of Northampton, but you didn't give it to her because she was George Foreman, but you later think you should have done because she was yes. George Foreman. Because and... she
1: was George Foreman, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what a um, fool I was.
0: We had a question from a listener that was um, uh, not specific to this, but I thought it might be good just to. Uh, post to you as an historian of queenship this is joe pertwee on twitter saying having listened to ethelflaed lady of the mercians why do we hear so little about her and women like matilda of boulogne yet more of someone like Boudicca or even joan of arc um you True. introduced me to ethelflaed and i studied Stephen at school but knew nothing of matilda the empress featured but more as the wronged woman with her crown stolen is it because over the ages history has perpetuated but perpetuated this view of the valiant yet ultimately tragic woman and ignored those who were arguably more successful and had more impact
2: with like queens as a whole it's been a case of people haven't focused on queens as a whole bunch and it is just the one to stand out most notably um for the reasons of the king. So for example, you know, we all know Henry the wives, don't we? That kind of mm-hmm. always pops up as the queens we're going to know. Um I don't think history at school or indeed the wider historical narrative picks up on women that are perhaps more problematic to explain. You mm-hmm. know? Sometimes when we talk about queens and whatever, we don't want to um or people don't want to dig into the yes and no side of it they want a simple story and matilda's not a simple story empress matilda is not a simple story to tell you know because like i say we've got all these perceptions of her by the chroniclers of being haughty or arrogant and so on and there's more to it than that and sometimes i think history does get uh quite simplified it's just we want people that we can be like yes they were good or yes they were bad or you know yeah. Um, you know easier to make a decision on whereas Mm. actually history's just full of like rich vibrant characters isn't it who we Mm. can kind of unpick and like you've done with Rex Factor look at both sides look at all the sides
1: Mm. it's certainly revealing um, seeing the other side of kings through the queens and it does seem for whatever reason does seem neglected um really bizarrely because it's just a, a very massively important part of their uh, personal and political lives it's very odd but we're putting it right G-Man
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and because um, you're saying you're um, based at Winchester actually there's quite a sort of queenship that's sort a of bit of a centre for queenship studies
2: Yeah, so there's the um, Centre for Medieval and Renaissance kind of history, Um, but we've also got Ellie Woodacre there, who is an expert in queenship studies. She does all the queenship books and stuff, and um, we've got like this Royal Studies Network and so on, so there's a big kind of hub of queenship people at Winchester doing all sorts of medieval queens through to the Georgians, I think.
1: What a place to be doing it as well, steeped in history there.
2: Uh, absolutely i mean you can't walk around winchester without you know obviously having the cathedral or the statue of alfred or mm. you know lots of old brickwork and so on um so yeah it's really a wonderful place to kind of uh yeah study history
1: i've been twice and each time i saw trout in the river <laughs> which was just lovely in the center of town it's beautiful yeah. absolutely yeah. loved it i mean if a town's got fish in it that's pretty good news yeah
2: no, it's a it's a really nice place to yeah live and walk around and so on uh but mm. a bit expensive yeah. <laughs> it's a dream day for anyone to go and explore history i think
0: yeah, yeah. definitely so uh sort of covid et cetera, depending what does the sort of immediate future hold for you then you said you said you've got sort of a book hopefully coming along so what's what's the future plans
2: yeah, but so I've got two books I'm hopefully lining up. One is a biography of Berenguer of Navarre, nice. um, because the last one that came out was about 20-odd years ago or something, and I feel needs a big update. <laughs> and I'm also working on uh, turning my thesis into a book, and that's looking at kind of like co-rulership and competition, so how the kings and queens worked together and how the queens worked with their sons. And then it's going to be, um, yeah, doing all sorts of stuff. We've just set up the Teen Queen social media project. and
1: Ooh, what's that?
2: Uh, so we're doing, like, Queen of the Day posts. So we're do- doing global queenship, and we're posting a new queen three times a week and doing, like, mini bios of them.
1: Oh, that's cool. What's the what's – the, I don't know what the right word is. What is and the, the- –
2: team queens hissed um but yeah it's just gonna be trying to get research projects get team queens up off the ground um and so on and looking for a a researchy type job really
0: nice how hard has it been um with for in particularly in terms of working as an historian with lockdown and all of those restrictions has it been a good timing in the sense that i guess you've done your thesis and You weren't requiring to go into places or has it restricted what you've been able to do?
2: Uh, i've been very lucky in that i did my last research trip to france about a month or so before we went into the first lockdown so i just managed <laughs> to finish everything i needed in order to do the thesis it's been difficult not being able to go to libraries and kind of like look at recent editions and so on um obviously a lot of stuff is available online but it's always good if you can go and look at the originals or go and look at another book oh, yeah. um just a case of managing i mean for the berenguer biography on want to go to the bar at some point and i don't know when mm. that's going to be possible but mm. fingers crossed yeah. mm-hmm.
1: oh, well i hope, hope you can get there soon because yeah we'll definitely have that on our reading list
2: yeah thank
1: <laughs> you oh i've got a question sorry to jump in at the end the most important one what do you think of the line in winter
2: it's my fave i love it I really like it as a
1: film. Ah, Ali
0: wasn't such a fan.
1: Me too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that film. Um. Oh boy. I think we we discovered that Ali's sort of film interests generally, old films that aren't about the Second World War struggle to retain Ali's at least interest, Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's a yeah. long old film to be fair it's not something I break out on a regular basis because it is long but I do <sighs> have been. Uh it's mad that that's like the most recent thing we've got of the mm. Plantagenets and the Angevins though to be fair though mm. Eleanor Rakuten is getting her own se- TV series next year by the same people who made the Tudors I don't okay. know if that's a good thing or a <laughs> bad thing at the moment
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you used to like the Tudors G-Man yeah, it's, it's a guilty pleasure, one would call it. It
1: tailed off towards the end. They sped up, didn't they?
2: Yeah, they were like, oh, we'll have a season on Catherine, and one on Anne, and one on Jane. Yes. Oh, don't worry about the other three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, <I'm>
1: <laughs> ratings are dropping quick.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ali, do you like Gladiator and King Arthur and things like that? Um, I... Well, <laughs>
0: Braveheart. Oh, no! Oh, no. Alice no. and Edward the First fan. <laughs> And even though Edward might seem like a baddie for Ali, it's the perfect way to depict him.
1: No, that is a flawless depiction of some medieval magic king for all its perfect accuracy.
2: Is this what you want to happen with your film? You just want a big, like, three-hour blockbuster about Edward I. I the
1: think, First? I think, actually, what I, ne- I just need to go to Wales and sit in a castle for a bit and just let off some steam, <laughs> and then I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll just, then the, the red mist will descend, and it'll be fine. I just need to oh, breathe a bit. <laughs> Lockdown, it's, it's making me crazy.
0: <laughs>
2: no the feeling. Yeah, it's... It is weird, like, thinking about research plans coming up and then remembering I can't go to the library, but I'll manage, yeah. you know. It's just, there's quite a lot of good people out there who will send you resources or scans of stuff that they've got scurried away. So, Academic Trading Network. Yeah, I've got a PDF. No. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> nice, yeah. Oh, it's a, I imagine there's a lot of um, pulling together in a tight-knit community like that. Like there's not many people studying what you study.
2: No, no, there's not. Um, especially in the UK, it's really weird. There's loads of US historians of queens, and it's a really yeah. big thing in Spain as well to study their queens. But in the UK, there's probably like three or four um, academics like that have full time jobs doing queens, yeah. and then the rest of us it's just students and stuff scattered all over the place.
1: Wow needs to get that book out
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh you'll be interested as well um there is a four volume series coming out called english consorts and it's going to be like a mini biography of every oh. queen consort of england and it's really? going to be affordable it's going to go into waterstones i think and it should be due out some point the later bit of this year
0: oh cool oh, excellent well, I, I was—I think we've done about half an hour just after the point of which I was going to say thank you so much for um, <laughs> speaking to us and uh, talking to us about all of the Angevin Queens and uh, particularly obviously making the case for Berengaria uh, of Navarre. Thank
2: you for having me. It was great to come on and chat about all the Angevin Queens.
0: Oh, thank you. And uh, good luck with uh, the books and uh, everything else to come. Yeah, thanks very much. Good luck.
2: Uh, bye. Great, thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye
1: correspondence corner
0: anyway so thank you again to uh, dr gabby story let us know what you thought about the interview and the Angevin queens and if you've got any well if you've got any questions if you've got any questions for her then you can find her on twitter at dr gabby story that's gabby spelled without an e story with an e
1: oh there you go
0: hey what was the other thing though oh team Hashtag- queens at team queens hist mm. so follow her follow that um, if you'd like to get in touch with us obviously you can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at Rex Factor Pod, like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com now if you'd like to support the podcast you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on, or indeed on whatever podcast provider you use we are a free podcast but if you'd like to support us financially you can make a one off donation via PayPal and we say a big thank you to Dritan Brati and Victoria Sloyan who've done just that Thank you. Or you can donate monthly and join the Privy Council to get bonus content. And now we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. RA Nightingale, Lapolk, Carrad Cliff, Courtney Celestware, I think that's part name, part username. Blaze Kennedy, Jenny Scollum, Eve Jeffrey, Susan Bont Sewing Dervish, Sewing Dervish, Alexandra Ashar, Lynn Epsley, Becky Phillips, Strimballon, Maggie Johnston, Inner Jordans, Kate Keesling, and Flying Mags.
1: <laughs> Great.
0: <laughs> uh, and now we've got some messages from Privy Councillors. Uh, This is from Ginger. I'm excited to listen to the Extra Preview Council podcasts. Across Canada, we've been asked to stay at home for a few weeks. This was a while ago, so presumably it's been a few weeks more since then. Uh, We've been asked to stay home for a few weeks, so I plan to be immersed in Rex Factor. While facts may be tenuous at times, I love your theories. As the saying goes, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. I hope that you and your families stay healthy and although your wee ones may not yet be ready for bead to pass time, remember those fabulous oral mother goose rhymes and nursery tales.
1: Thanks. Yeah, i will try them on some nursery rhymes actually. I don't think I've tried them on any. Uh,
0: this one from Ben Jenkins. I've loved the pod for years and in this extended break from society that we're all having right now, I look forward to listening to the back catalogue of Rex Factor. Oh, thanks man. Emma Lashley says, I've been listening to the podcast for years now. It makes my commute to and from campus much more enjoyable. I'm currently going to school to become an archaeologist, so I'm pretty sure I can count listening as studying. I actually spent last summer in Ireland excavating at a castle believed to have been built by the English around 1300. So, of course, I re-listened to the Edward I episode. And now that I'm Privy Council member, I'm excited to listen to Ali's episode about Welsh castles.
1: Whoa. I wonder which um, castle it was she was excavating and what was found.
0: And finally, Nick Humphrey says Your special podcast made me laugh so much I've realised how much I need you guys right now.
1: Which which episode?
0: Uh, oh, which one would that have been? Could it have been the 10th anniversary special, maybe? What was that? Where we celebrated our 10th anniversary.
1: Well, not with a queen, not with a. Spe- it was just an episode.
0: Yeah, well, we did two episodes actually for our- <laughs> I forget when was
1: that I genuinely don't remember doing that uh,
0: in August oh fine yeah ages ago <laughs> <A few. laughs> uh, and last of all of course it's consort limerick from Louise Hey. this time for Matilda of Scotland
1: uh, oh yeah okay
0: well you'll find out in a minute
1: yeah I do it every time I want to find out who it was but then <laughs> realise yeah
0: Matilda from Ethling's descended, having proved that she'd never intended, to live as a nun where the Conqueror's son and the two royal lines were thus blended.
1: It's, it's such
0: a skill. <laughs> she weaved a few things in there as well. you know.
1: Yeah. Really clever. I mean, I'm worried a few queens ago, I worried that perhaps we were putting too much pressure on her <laughs> to keep Coming up with the goods, but she's thriving on it. There's no, there hasn't <laughs> been a dud. Well, maybe she works well under pressure.
0: <laughs> uh, so that's all from us and uh, from this little mini series. Um, we are next going to be doing, uh, well, we've got some Privy Council episodes that we'll be doing. We've got a special episode relating to the uh, American Revolutionary Wars. I'm thinking possibly from uh, sort of looking at George III and uh, America.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that. I like the idea of that.
0: Mm, that being our focus, to make it a bit more accessible rather than just the whole massive thing. Uh, and then we'll be back with the consort and Eleanor of Provence. Lovely. So, until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. Capella University's FlexPath format. You can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Icy Hot starts working instantly to dull the pain with the icy cool sensation. Then the warming sensation relaxes it away. Feel the power of Icy Hot's contrast therapy. Ice works fast, heat makes it last. Icy Hot.